Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 8. 18 in the a.m. on the 28th of February 2007. And I read a very interesting post. And you know, thank you so much, everyone, for being so gracious and generous and honest with your experiences and feelings on this board. I mean, this is heady and deep alchemy that we are involved in here. And the frankness and the vulnerability, which is to say the emotional strength that people display by giving me and others, of course, who read it, uh, such wonderful, wonderful insights into their own histories of that kind of frankness and honesty, I know is not easy, but boy, is it amazing in terms of uh, what it helps other people to understand and the commonality of humanity that we all possess, which is so often obscured through the false self-maneuvering, manipulation, and one-upmanship that goes on in society. So I wanted to um, uh, podcast on a post that a user put in, but it was very personal, and I just asked his permission before doing it. So we, we may get to the material, we may not, but I will tell you this, that I will start with a little bit of a theory or a background as to the problem that a lot of people face in their lives, which is around teenage depression. So we'll put out the sort of theory, and then we'll see when we get to the actual post how well it fits. Now, trust me, I, I haven't come up with the theory since reading the guy's post this morning, so I'm not going to be cooking the, uh, the experiment. So, in my view, and I, I can't explain depression, obviously, in all of its manifestations and circumstances, and some of it is biochemical in nature or health-based in nature. And I myself do not manifest distress as depression. I manifest unhappiness or stress or negative things in um, irritability and in sleeplessness. Those are sort of my two major responses to this kind of stuff. But I do know that depression, and I'm trying to think, I certainly have had times, obviously times, where I felt sad and empty for weeks or occasionally months at a time, but it's never been in any way debilitating for me, and it's been something that I've sort of been in hot pursuit of trying to understand. But I would not say that I have experienced a major episode of depression. Now, my father has experienced many major episodes of depression in his life, to the point of suicidality, to the point of institutionalization, to the point of electroshock therapy, uh, so, so pretty radical and extreme. And certainly by, by that standard, I've not uh, experienced any of that. And I'm not saying this is true of anyone uh, on the board, but there has been some talk about uh, teenage uh, depression, and uh, I'd like to sort of throw out some ideas about why I think it may occur and why in particular it, um, it seems to hit around puberty and so on. And in conjunction with that, doing a two-for-one podcast topic Orama, I wanted to throw in there's been a, a mild debate about people like Washington and Jefferson on the boards and people regarding them as, as heroes and uh, so on. And I resist that with all my might, and I, I may do that rightly or I may do that wrongly, but I resist that heroism, the heroizing 
resist that with all my might. I truly, truly do. And it's not because I don't believe in heroes and it's not because I don't believe there's courage and greatness in the world. I just try as much as I possibly can not to externalize it because I feel that bleeds my own reservoir of heroism. To worship, I mean, as, as I posted on the boards, we must, we must, we must strive as hard as we can to get rid of the gods in history as much and as greatly and as deeply as the gods in the sky. So, when people look back upon Jefferson, they don't have much recollection, and obviously this is the great problem with history, that we have no knowledge of Jefferson except words. And no video footage or anything like that. And uh, other than the DNA evidence, that seems fairly compelling that he... And I have to say it, I mean, I, I hate to put it less, uh, less delicately, but it doesn't seem to me to be... You know, the guy, I think, lived for the last 40 years of his life without a wife, never remarried, had a slave woman, uh, his own slave, he had 187 slaves, which he inherited, and also which he, uh, I think he freed them on his deathbed, which, you know, what a noble gesture that is. And fathered children with this with this woman, and people say, well, there's no evidence of that, and well, there seems to be strong DNA evidence. But let me, let me tell you something, I mean, I know that you want to worship this guy and so on, but... I'll just give you some basic facts of, of human nature, which I'm sure you're fully, fully aware of, but there's just a certain kind of reverence here which is blinding you to it. Which is that uh, if a, a man is unmarried and travels with a female companion, they're having sex. If an unmarried man travels with a female companion for any length of time, and she's not involved with anyone else, they're having sex. If she stays with him for decades, if she sits by his deathbed, they're not just friends. Of course, you can't just be friends with your slave, right? I mean, she's a concubine. She is uh, a slave. And because slaves can't consent to sex, or not consent to sex, um, non-consensual sex is right. I mean, it is, uh, it doesn't mean that he was lurking in alleyways and jumping, you know, but in a sense it's even worse, right? Because it's uh, repeated, institutionalized, uh, and non-consensual sex uh, resulting in pregnancies or multiple pregnancies or whatever. And people say, well, you know, he was a flawed human being, he didn't quite live up to his own ideals, he was torn about slavery and this and that, and that's all fine, I mean, of course, I mean, he's not the worst guy in the world, but this is not a, a matter or an issue of, I think John Adams freed his slave, right? This is not an issue of that he didn't know how to use an electric razor because it hadn't been invented yet. He himself wrote that all men are created equal. He himself railed against slavery and did not free his slaves and did not marry an equal, but married in a sense, in a common law kind of sense. You know what, I'm not even gonna go there because you can't even say you marry a slave. He did not choose to marry a woman who was his equal or who was intelligent or who was heroic. He chose to have as his companion an uneducated, dependent slave. And that doesn't say very much for his self-esteem, right? That really doesn't say very much. If I talk about the self-esteem and the need for uh, an equal uh, in, your, in your emotional life, or the need for equals, and hopefully uh, betters, right? I mean, there's nothing better than learning for a better. But then I went to 
Russia to troll among the uh, disgusting mining towns for a bride, you would probably find that a little hypocritical. And I don't mind if people say, well, yes, he, he wrote some great words and uh, you know, Declaration of Independence. He wrote some wonderful language, which we still quote today. Well, that's fine. But then he's an artist, right? Then he's an artist. Or he's a moralist, if you like, but he's not a moral man. Now, those who teach but don't practice are hip hypocritical, right? I mean, just sort of fundamentally. He was an artist, right? He spoke, well, he was an actor. And we, we know this, we know this from seeing all of this amazing acting that goes on on stage and screen. We see Martin Sheen play a president, uh, very presidential. He appears to be a president. He gives great speeches. He has that cockeyed, optimistic grin. Right, he's a genius. Except he's not, he's Martin Sheen who raised Charlie Shane, who beat his wife. I thought people just act good. I mean, just watch an episode of The West Wing and you get the whole thing. They just act good. They just act well. They just appear noble. But it's by a man's actions that his soul is judged, not by his words. Right? Words are a dime a dozen. Word talk is cheap. We all know the, the bromides. And of course, if all we knew about Ayn Rand was Ayn Rand's own writing about herself, about how she lives the life that she preaches and how she has dedicated herself to rationality and how her life, as she puts it, is, a, is the next sentence after her books and that sentence is, and I mean it. But she married a man who appeared to be a dismal and empty failure, who was a failed actor who never got any kind of career going and was certainly just sat there smiling placidly while her wife, his wife expounded and expounded and expounded and she attached herself to those who were intellectually dependent upon her and worshipped her. And all of this, uh, and of course the, uh, uh, the affair with Brandon, the inquisitional trials, and all of this indicates an unstable, narcissistic, and dictatorial personality, which is not too shocking, right, to, to see coming out of Soviet Russia and uh, from the Jewish culture, right, I mean, particularly in Russia, which is kind of dictatorial and kind of bullying. So if all we knew, if we didn't know the facts, right, all we knew was, and we would say, wow, if she was a hero, she was exactly like John Galt. But it's not true. Right? I mean, it's not true, and it's, it's important to know that it's not true. It's important to know if somebody can't live up to his or her own ideals, it's important. And if they don't admit that they can't live up to their own ideals, that's important too. That's important too. It means that they don't really believe what they're saying. It's just a posture. It's a kind of art form for them. It sounds good. It's, they're striking a noble pose, right? They're putting on a uniform and claiming to be in the military, but they're putting on a uniform the way an actor puts on makeup. And does this mean that uh, the American experiment was a dismal failure? Well, yes, of course it was. I mean, absolutely no question that the American experiment was a complete and total and dismal failure. I mean, good heavens, people. I mean, this, this, <laughs> the words and the deeds, as is always the case with government, and the words and the deeds had nothing to do with each other. All men are created equal, but only a certain small section of the population gets to vote, and there is still slavery that is allowed, and, and, and there's a civil war within, what, 70 years, 80 years, 600,000 people killed in public schools in less than 100 years, uh, and then there's more wars, and then there's, you know, I mean, good luck, it took 120 years. Oh, 130 
foreign government in Hawaii to be a chief before America became just another stupid-ass, bullying, vainglorious, over-patriotic, despotic imperial nation. Just like, I mean, this it was complete and total failure relative to the words, right? And, and what do words really mean? Well, you, you write down, I'm a good guy. You could get Paul Bernardo or Charles Manson to write down, I'm a good guy. It would take them all of three seconds. Saying all men are created equal is anyone could write that down. Anyone. Anyone. You could train a monkey to write that down. Does that mean that the monkey is a great philosopher? No, because the monkey doesn't treat everyone like they're even, uh, like they're equal, excuse me. So, and I'm not doing this to smash the concept of heroism at all. I'm not making these arguments to smash the concept of, of heroism. I don't want, I, I, I prize and treasure the concept of heroism. I just don't want you to pour it into historical figures or gods or presidents or any of these ridiculous vessels. I want you to hoard your concept of heroism for yourself. For yourself. I don't want you to drain off heroism and hand it out to others. I want you to keep it for yourself, to hoard it like a miser and to grow into it and to radiate it and to broadcast it and to beam it out across this benighted world. I want you to hang on to heroism for yourself and not to pour it into rapist slave owners or George Washington who was a general who got, you know, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people killed for the sake of setting up just another state. And forget about the words. Look at the reality. Well, why was the American Republic put in place in the shape that it was? Come on. We know human nature doesn't change that much. The reason it was a small government was because it was a new government. The reason that it was a small government was because there was not an existing infrastructure. The reason that it was a small government was because it was almost impossible to collect taxes. You know that human beings justify everything that they do. Ex post facto, after the fact. We can only create a small government? Hell, let's make small government a virtue. Oh, we can make a bigger government? Hell, uh, let's make a big government a virtue. I mean, this is what has happened throughout the American experiment and through every world. Now, throughout the world, through every country. People look at the bullshit evil power that they can get away with. And they say, well, whatever we can get away with, that's what's good. If we can only get away with a small government, then small government is good. If we can get away with a big government, then big government is good. Whatever people can get away with becomes the virtuous. I mean, this is not, uh, not too shocking, not too surprising. There was no eruption of magical heroism a couple of hundred years ago, but then mysteriously faded away. There were a lot of words, and those words were useful, and those words were important. And if you want to worship, fine, worship the words, that's fine. I would still counsel not to, but it's a heck of a lot better than worshiping the individuals. That you must say for yourself. Don't give away your treasures, especially to hypocritical ghosts. So, and, and, and to, to, sorry, last thing, to, to project heroism onto others, I think, I believe, 
yourself and take some responsibility off yourself. And don't you feel a little bit that when you worship someone that you measure yourself as small relative to them? Don't you feel that when you do that, when you measure yourself against a hero that you diminish yourself? And that's why I'm saying don't bleed off your own capacity for greatness. Don't project it onto others. Don't diminish yourself by creating secular gods and founding fathers. What a lot of crap. Don't diminish your own glory, your own depth, your own power, your own heroism by imagining there are gods who walk the earth or even demigods or even giants. You are that. You. You are that. And take the responsibility for that, I would, I would suggest. I don't worship the past. I don't worship slave owners. I don't worship Washington the general. And look at the long term of what happened from their experiment and don't think that it's because other people failed the experiment. That experiment fails everywhere. It's not the fault of individuals. The experiment of the state. And to tie into this question of depression, for me, at least, sort of fundamentally, what happens when we become teenagers. I'm going to speak more particularly to the men here, but I, I don't know enough about the female experience, but I would certainly, I think I can speak with some credibility towards the male experience. But when we are toddlers and when we're going through the latency period of childhood, we can be small without cost. We can be obedient and small without cost. But the propulsion to greatness occurs at puberty. And puberty is nature's signal that you're no longer a child, that you are now a man, that you must no longer be obedient, but you must now be in authority yourself. At the extended adolescence that goes on for people into their 20s whoops us beyond words, at least beyond this podcast's words. But uh, it's nature is uh, that you're now an adult, that you're now grown. Physically, right? You can reproduce, right? Which means that you are now supposed to take some authority for yourself and no longer be obedient. You are supposed to stride into the world and claim what's yours and be heroic and be great and be grand and learn and teach and be loving and be wise and be strong and be fine and you know, stride the world like a colossus. That's what nature's commandment is. That's why... Your strength doubles, that's why your height shoots up, that's why your voice goes growling. That's why the naughty bits go hedgehog. And um, what scope is allowed all of this great new grandeur and power, all this depth and wisdom and capacity for wisdom, this strength and this sexuality, where, where, where does it all go? Well, you get stuck in a little chair in a little row for hour after hour after hour listening to fools drone on. When you are electric, alive, glowing with potential. 
possibly confined in a tiny little chair with tiny little people. If you put a child in a suit of armor designed for a seven-year-old and you keep it in there, you keep the child in there until the child is 16, what is going to happen to his bone structure? What is going to happen to him? Uh, he's going to become extraordinarily uncomfortable and distorted when you don't let the natural play of growth go on. Keeping early teens men in the little boxes of public schools or private schools is ridiculous. It's hellish. And the greater your capacity, most often, the greater your depression. For me, it was irritability. For others, it's depression. For others, it's acting out. But we don't want to stay so small. We don't want to stay so crushed into nothing. We don't want to be so confined in these tiny little cages of meaninglessness and confinement. And I'm just talking about school. Oh, Lord, the parents. Allergic they are to death. Allergic they are to potential. Allergic they are to heroism and size and conquering. Not others, but fantasy. The little, 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 little parents who react so often to any proclamation of depth or curiosity or any pursuit of wisdom or knowledge or any ambition beyond the parochial who react with scornful and little jokes who smash down any leaf that grows beyond the hedge who chortle and giggle and diminish and crush and crush and crush any aspiration beyond their own. And if you came from an intellectual family, or an educated family, or whatever, then uh, all they do is they don't crush your ambitions in an intellectual sense, they just crush your curiosity. Right? So if you, uh, your parents went to Harvard, and they, they of course, are going to say, you, you should go to Harvard, right? So they'll encourage that ambition, but let's see what happens when you start to talk to them about the violence inherent in the state or social programs. They see the vanity that they wish to harvest, the accolades that they wish to harvest, they see all of that vanishing in a glowing chasm of white-hot curiosity. Because if you're an anarcho-capitalist, you ain't going to Harvard, my friend. <laughs> I mean, or if you go, you ain't gonna stay. You ain't gonna graduate. Somebody posted on the boards yesterday that there's some book that Oprah is really keen on, which is all about how, you know, if you wish for things, you magically create them. I mean, that's, there's probably not a whole lot more to it, but that's sort of the essence. And she quotes the woman who wrote this book. It's 100 pages long, and it like, has some short title, but it's about, you know, you, you visualize things and then you achieve them. It's, uh, of course, completely insane magical thinking. And 
creates entitled narcissists, but we don't have to go into all of that, I think, to get the general idea. But people say, oh, you should write a 100-page book like this, Steph, because it's obviously popular. And I, I certainly appreciate that, and I've got it on the list of things to do when uh, Freedom Aid Radio, uh, when I strap myself into the, uh, <laughs> the Krakatoan volcanic uh, projectile that is full-time FDR. But I think it's important to understand that because this book is successful, my odds of success are much less, right? I mean, because people prefer this kind of stuff, uh, just sort of magical, wishy-thinky crap, to any kind of real or disciplined philosophical examination. And there's uh, the more crap this uh, crap crap crowds out, uh, good stuff, right? Bad money crowds out good money. And bad philosophy or non-philosophy or magical narcissistic wish fulfillment, non-philosophy, mysticism, the mysticism of desire, crowds out rational constraints and uh, a healthy approach to integrity and virtue. And of course, it's much more pleasant for people to read that they can win the lottery if they only really want to, uh, rather than saying you need to confront the people in your life who are doing you harm by your own standards. And that's going to make them pretty uncomfortable, right? People want to, and it's not because people are innately, they just, right? I mean, they just, <laughs> this is how they're raised, right? To look for imaginary comforts rather than to confront real challenges and grow thereby, right? The infantilization of the species continues and continues and continues. And of course, this occurs, this um, self-condemnation, this war of the self, this natural size, this natural grandeur that I think is the birthright of every human being. This is, I mean, if I were to put our nature, adaptable and grand, I would say. I mean, the, the depth of wisdom that is available in everyone's dreams, everyone's dreams, right? The, the portrait that is painted of the real world that they live in rather than the social world that they pretend is real. It's all delineated and somewhat obscure at times, but it's all clearly delineated and the wisdom that is within us is extraordinarily deep and powerful. I'm not teaching you anything you don't know. I'm just saying that what you do know it needs to be consistent and uh, asking the questions about consistency. I'm not teaching you anything you don't know. Uh, this, is, this is not uh, invention. This is archaeology, right? as I said before. This is not us creating principles. This is us uncovering and revealing principles. Right? You see a cornerstone of an ancient Mayan... Uh, I don't know what they would be called. <laughs> Ziggurat. And you just uncover it. You don't build the cigarette, you just uncover it. And it's a delicate and difficult process, but we are not inventing principles here, we're just uncovering it. So the natural wisdom and grandeur that we possess as human souls runs bang, smack dab into the petty, tiny, terrified, narcissistic, reactionary, controlling, tiny little despotisms infinitely tiny and infinitely despotic prejudices of others against any kind of depth or grandeur. These people who live these little frightened tiny lives who are frightened of everything mock any kind of depth or grandeur. Why? Because they themselves have depth and grandeur which they have betrayed. Because they take the easy and lazy and corrupt road of crushing others, of diminishing others rather than assuming their own natural proportions. This is the one-armed king who, rather than getting a prosthetic, cuts off the arms of everyone in the kingdom. Cuts off at least one arm of everyone in the kingdom. I, I bet you this is how the tonsure started. 
you know, that monk fringe around the head, they, they sort of shave off the bald spot. And there was just some guy with a bald spot who didn't like it, who shaved it off, and who said, well, now this is a sign of piety to God. <laughs> I mean, that's how these things die. Some guy with a bald spot, now monks have to have these bald spots till the end of time. So, this collision as we grow into the depth, and the children are capable of this depth as well, but it's easier to get away with it when you're much smaller, particularly when you're smaller than your parents, right? I mean, and this is why I think it's a little more for men than for women, right? The men have the strength, and there is that moment where you're not looking up at your mom, but you're looking down at your mom, and that's the moment, uh, whether that's psychologically or physically, it doesn't really matter, whether your mom's some sort of Amazon and you're not, but there is that moment where you are just stronger than your parents, and it occurs at puberty. It occurs at puberty or shortly thereafter. I am now stronger than my parents. I'm physically stronger, and I am also closer to the original truth. I'm less corrupted, right, because you're closer to the original. As we talked about in the last podcast, you're closer to the original perceptions of reality that accrued to you as a child, as an infant. You're less corrupted. You have more capacity, more potential, and you are stronger, uh, deeper, and in a sense, wiser. And this is, of course, the time when your parents, logically and rationally, should begin to relinquish their control uh, over your behavior, which should never be strong, right? It should be based on principles rather than, you know, sort of fear and, and all that. We don't have to get into parenting now. There's a thread on the board where people are going to talk about it, I'm sure, at great length, which is going to be very interesting to read. But this is where your family should be like the bed of the space shuttle as it flies up into the sky, right? It should contain your energy in the way that the base underneath the space shuttle contains and focuses the energy of the thruster rockets. Your family should help you shape and contain the power of your potential as you rise like a rocket into the, the sky of society. But what do they do? Right? You're just thundering, fully fueled rocket, ready to rise, ready to thunder into the sky. And all they do is they say there's no rocket and secretly when you sleep they shred and destroy the mechanism right they cut the fuel lines they drain the fuel they they just wish to keep you inert they push it over they bury it they what rocket well they know enough about the rocket that they need to break it right they know enough about your grandeur and potential that they need to mock it so they can see it clearly clearly do not fight what we do not consider an enemy. And so the constant mockery and diminishment and scorn and eye-rolling and all of that that goes on with us, with our teachers and with our elders and with our priests and with our governments and so on, all of the eye-rolling, all of the diminishment, all of the petty, frightened, little, mousy controls that are layered over the grandeur of the souls, all of the sabotage of the thundering rocket potential. This is all because the rocket is perfectly seen by those who have power over us, by those who are small. Oh my god. Let's pull that right in front of me. Nice driving. It's all perfectly seen. The rocket is you know, shredding the rocket, sabotaging the rocket, pretending there is no rocket, is the fundamental activity of the entire community, the entire culture, the entire society must constantly defuse the teenage boy. 
it, it, the, the drive to adulthood and independence must be broken. Or what the hell else are you going to pay taxes for the rest of your life? How can you be allowed to grow up when you are going to be infantilized by the state for the rest of your life? How can the state continue if you ever become a fully actualized or even partially actualized independent adult? How can a hero submit to bureaucrats? How can a thundering, rocketing sky god submit to little regulations? How can a hero sit in a little row and listen to little people for lots of years? But you can't be allowed to grow up, and it is right at the pubescent area, right around 12, 13, 14, 15, that you must be absolutely smashed, that you must have your potential wrecked. Right? They used to hobble the slaves so the slaves couldn't run. Well, here they just do it emotionally so that you will remain in thrall and independent and small. And independent, sorry. <laughs> you will remain in thrall and dependent for the rest of your life. You're not allowed to outgrow your authority. And your authority, because it wants to control you and feast upon you, and exploit you is petty and ridiculous and tiny and corrupt by definition. Right? They put the fences around the cows, but they can't put the fences around us. Why? Because we need to go to work so that we can produce the money for the rulers and the teachers and the priests and, yes, of course, the parents to take. This is the great genius of the modern state. This is the terrifying advancement from slavery and feudalism and other of these kinds of systems, right? In the past, they lashed you to the land, and you produced so little that they could live, but not well. Your rulers, the aristocrats, and so on. They lashed you, they controlled you, they, 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 they chained you to themselves or to the land, and you produced very little because it was only your body that they could control, right? The great genius of modern statism. And you can see this occurring around the world in China, places like that. Oh, wow, the Chinese are finally getting interested in freedom. No, they finally figured out, the government's finally figured out that if they crush you mentally but free you physically, they get much more to pillage. Much more to pillage. So they can't confine you physically, they just must hobble you mentally. Yet leave enough of your faculties intact and leave enough economic freedom for you to go out and produce all of the goodies that they can steal. And through the stealing of those additional goodies, they can buy nuclear weapons, which, and all of the other paraphernalia, and they can have enough money to arm the troops. And like, so the power of the state grows with the economic freedom of the individual, right? And there's this great arc, and of course, then it crashes and so on. But that's the genius, right? That's the amazing thing. And we all get this unconsciously when we are teenagers, right? That this is the moment of great danger for society. This is when, if society doesn't crush us, we will not grow up to be productive livestock. Right? We're there for the service and the pleasure of, of others, right? Everybody uh, who is any kind of authority over us, all of the priests and uh, political leaders and parents, all these people, I mean, they just they, they want to exploit us. And the best way to exploit us is to crush us mentally and leave us somewhat free economically. The shreds of free market that still exists is the fertilizer that grows the taxation. 
And this is why there's certain kinds of economic freedoms that are spreading throughout the world. China, India, and places, right? It's not because people believe in the free market. They just say that, right? Because that's what is how, they, it's how they're going to maximize their, their income. But what is really happening is that people have figured out that if you let your people be more free, they will produce far more in terms of taxation, right? They've learned that lesson from the West, at least. They've learned that lesson from places like America. So this a process of hobbling us mentally, of not allowing us to light the rockets of our heroic beings, this is what we encounter. This is what we see. This is what we experience when we hit puberty. And this is why people end up in institutions. And this is why, especially those who have depth and grandeur. And this is why there's so much medication. And this is why uh, everything is just so horrible. And the school, of course, public schools are much more geared towards girls than boys because girls are nice and polite and don't cause much trouble, whereas boys can cause all the trouble in the world, right? The aging leaders are always terrified of the strapping and vital youths, and they must crush them into insignificance and obedience, and this occurs by endlessly grinding down their capacity for strength and heroism and their potential and their desire for great things by laughter and mockery and all the petty little goblin snipes that occur from those in authority that whittle us down to a little convenient toothpick. Thank you so much for listening. Been a little dry on the old donation front this week, so if you find these things of all of use, uh, do yourself a favor and do me a favor and toss some cash over the fence. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon.